0: From the conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Australians have been shocked at the energy crisis that's gripping the east coast of the country. We've all known about the so-called climate war that have paralysed policymaking in the last decade. But now, not only have those caught up with us, but also other factors, including the Ukraine war, have contributed to the present situation. The new Labour government has a clear plan to transition to a decarbonised economy. But what it, or others, can do in the short term is less easy to fathom. Tony Wood is Director of the Energy Program at the Grattan Institute and he joins us today to talk through the issues. Tony Wood, firstly, how bad is this crisis? Have we ever seen anything comparable before?
1: Michelle, no, we haven't. This electricity market was created in the late 1990s by all the governments basically of the east coast of Australia, including South Australia, and we've not seen anything like that like this in that entire period. We've certainly seen situations where things have got very tight in hot summers and maybe the amount of electricity was limited, but this sort of extended period when we've had major outages and real stress on the entire system for such a long time has never been seen before.
0: And we just should make the point that the Western Australian uh, system is different. We're just talking about the east of Australia, including South Australia, right? Right.
1: Yeah, Western Australia and the Northern Territory are physically and therefore financially separate in terms of things like electricity.
0: Now, can you separate out for us the causes? If we'd had an adequate policy framework from the previous government to transition to renewables, would that have prevented the present problems? Or would the Ukraine war and other factors have still caused
1: difficulties? Well, they are always difficult questions to hypothesise about, Michelle, but I think the reality is that if we had, in the last 15 years, almost 20 years really, we haven't had adequate policies for this transition. And so if we had, in any one of those previous periods, really got started on good government policy to address climate change and therefore bring on more renewables and all that's needed to support those renewables, we would have been a lot further down the journey. However, I think you could also say with a high degree of confidence that We still would have had some of the coal-fired power stations uh, that we have today. We still would have had the weather patterns we had in the south on the east coast of Australia that caused all the rain and caused all the flooding of the coal mines that interrupted power supply. And, of course, we wouldn't have prevented the Ukraine war and we probably would have had real stress on the gas supply system. So it might have been a bit better. I don't think it would have avoided the problem altogether.
0: Now, the Australian energy market operator, which manages the system, put a cap on prices that the power companies could charge in the wholesale market. And that seemed sensible at the time. But then the power companies gained the system by not offering power into it. And the operator had to take over Or chose to take over the whole system to get more predictability and more control. So to what extent are the companies to blame for what's happening at the moment
1: or earlier this week? Michelle, this things became very complicated very quickly. What had been happening was that the market operator, every now and again, and probably only in this particular area, two or three times in the history of the electricity market, had been forced to intervene and Put a cap on prices. It's like what happens in the in the share market when they call the trading halt because the company is going through a difficult time. That cap or that halt to the market only takes place for a day, and that has happened before. But what happened this time was that when they did that and hoped to sort of stabilise the system, not much happened. They didn't get more coal fired power stations because they were many of them were just physically unable to provide power. And I think what happened with the gas generators. They became very uncomfortable because they had to go and secure more gas because they normally wouldn't be supplying gas for power generation at this level, at this time of the year. That meant they had to go and buy gas on the spot market, which is why they were competing with European companies, uh, countries for our gas, paying a lot of money. And they were faced in a very difficult situation where I think what happened is that the price they would have paid for that gas was so high, it wouldn't have been high enough to cover their – when they – sold it into the market, even though the market price was high at that cap, it wouldn't have covered their costs. Now, that got very messy. And so I think uh, to sort it out, Emo said, look, this market is not working. We've got to stabilize the market by calling a halt to all sort of trading. And what that also meant was that if they direct companies to run their generators and a company loses money, they will be financially compensated for that. So that system then works and it can stabilise things. So I think what our email did was the right thing in the circumstances. I don't honestly think the companies were trying to game the system, but I think the commercial arrangements were so complicated, this was the only solution.
0: Now, you mentioned compensation. Where does that come from? Who pays that in the first instance, and presumably it gets uh, through to consumers in some form they're paying?
1: Yeah, look, whenever the Australian energy market operator has to do anything of this, anything like this even to help secure the power system. So even a few times in hot summers, they have contracted for additional capacity, expensive capacity sometimes to come online, but only for short periods of time to, to stabilize the grid. And when they pay for that, IEMO pays for that, the cost of those payments get passed through to all consumers and they get averaged out across the entire system. And normally, even though they can be millions of dollars in total, because they're washed across the entire system, each of us doesn't see very much in terms of an increase in our power at all. So that will happen here. Any payments that the email has to make to the generators to compensate for this, and all, of course, all the other costs that may accumulate through this very difficult time, they will pass through to customers. Most of us almost certainly won't see much in the short term, but many people already were facing increases in their electricity bill, probably from the 1st of July, from what had happened already. So all the things we're talking about now will gradually wash through the system and will pay for them. How big they'll be remains to be seen because we've still got a very uncertain period ahead.
0: There's been extensive privatisation by state governments in the energy sector in recent years. Would we be better off if these assets were in government hands?
1: Look, overall, in all the assessments we've, ever, we've done over the years, Michelle, says yes that no, we'd be worse off. <laughs> now, there would be specific cases where the government says, well, we could have done that better. We could have directed the market or whatever. But the evidence usually is that there are certain things governments do very well and provide very well. And there are situations where governments don't do it well. And we can, de- we can design, governments can design a, a well-regulated market to do it for us and do it more efficiently than individual governments would do. And for the last more than 20 years, that's exactly what happened in the electricity market. Now, the the governments effectively own that market on our behalf. And if the market isn't doing what we want, they change the rules every now and again. So I don't think this is a fundamental failure of privatisation at all. But I do think it's a fundamental physical problem and government ownership wouldn't have made much difference. And of course, we do have government-owned generators in our system who've been accused just as much of gaming the system, as we were talking about earlier.
0: Federal and state governments have taken some steps in this crisis, including calling for preparation of a transition plan to take us to a renewable uh, system dominated by renewable energy. But what more can be done immediately?
1: Well, I think what the email has done will stabilise the system. What you were talking about a minute ago, Michelle, and your question is a longer term It's very important and it's been delayed too long, as we said before, and the government's plural, all of them together, need to get on top of that. The only other thing that I see in the short term needs to be looked at is this issue that right now, when the gas power stations are running, if they have to go and buy gas outside what have been their contracts and pay a lot for it, the people they're buying it from are making windfall profits, profits way above what anyone could reasonably expect. And in my opinion, that suggests that the, the government should go to those companies and say, look, you are making a windfall profit. This is not good enough. We we want you either to supply the consumers in Australia with gas at a fair price. You'll get a profit on that, but a fair price, nothing like this windfall profit level. And if you don't, we'll apply a windfall profit tax to everything above that fair price. Now, the companies have got an interest in making sure they don't destroy the domestic market and put company, their customers out of business. So I think they'd have a tr- tremendously strong incentive to do it. And if the government did it, that would also become another problem because the companies, those producers together, can't decide what price they're going to charge because that would be collusion under the Trade Practices Act. But if the government directed to say, look, you've got to provide a fair price, this is the number, then I think we might have some chance of reducing the cost of gas which is flowing through to the cost of electricity. And also, by the way, affecting people who buy gas as well.
0: One problem is that the coal-fired power stations have in some cases been uh, offline or are not fit for purpose. But should these be made fit for purpose now, given that the aim is to get coal out of the system to the greatest extent possible?
1: Transitions are always difficult things, I think. And I think we can see where we're going. It's going to be a system which is overwhelmingly dominated by renewable energy. It won't have any coal. It may have some gas or something else to balance the wind and solar when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining and some storage like Snowy Hydro 2.0. So all those things are where we're heading. But in the short term, we are going to manage this transition carefully, which means as we adopt more and more renewables, we're going to need some of these coal-fired power stations and gas-fired power stations to maintain the stability and the reliability of the system. They should only be there as necessary to support that transition. And what we've already seen is almost every year, even every six months or so, one or other of these coal-fired generators, owners, says, look, we're gonna close our plant earlier because in a very high renewables system, we're not making any money anyway, and B, our plants are getting older and we're better off closing them down. So we're just gonna see more of that. The important thing, And this comes back to your point about planning that transition well across all the states and territories, is to make sure as we do that, we maintain the reliability and the security of the system. That's what the governments are planning for. That's what they have to get on with.
0: But does that mean fixing these coal-fired power stations up? And if so, who pays for that and to what extent is it done?
1: Each of these plants that are off, have been offline has different problems. So for example, the two big ones in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, the biggest one in, in Australia, in Araring, their biggest problem is not the actual coal-fired power station itself. It's getting coal to the power station. That's a problem with the coal mining side of it. So the, power sta- the, the actual power station itself is perfectly fit for purpose. And once they get the coal system supply sorted out, that will be fine, as will, I think, a couple of others. A couple of the other units, like one in Queensland that had an explosion on one of its units last year, it's being repaired. It's, it's actually one of the newest systems in the system, and it will be fixed. It will be back online, um, but not until early next year. And so there's a bit, some like that. I don't think at the moment, from what I've seen and heard, any of the problems we have today, Well, they may be associated to some extent about the fact that the plants are getting older, is, is that any of them are not worth repairing to get them back online because most of the problems they've got, and the companies will decide this if they want to repair them, but most of the problems they've got are not major and not fundamental. But unfortunately, they've all come along at the same time.
0: When the Turnbull government established the so-called gas trigger, allowing the federal government to order companies to supply gas for the domestic market, should it have established at the same time a reserve scheme so that there would be an emergency supply of gas for a situation like this?
1: The issue with these um, reserve schemes uh, depends upon what you're trying to do. There is some evidence that some countries, and in fact Western Australia, has a uh, what's called the domestic reservation scheme, in which they basically say, look, a certain percentage, in their case, fifteen percent of the gas that we're producing needs to go to the domestic, be available to the domestic market. That effectively means you've got two markets: the domestic market and an international market, and the prices tend to broadly follow each other. But they're, it makes sure that the domestic market is supplied, and if you have the reserves high enough, then the price tends to be quite, uh, quite moderate. The problem we're facing here in the east coast of Australia at the moment is this significant concurrent uh, outages of a whole lot of coal-fired power stations, and we need a lot of gas in a short time. Now, we don't have a bucket of gas sitting anywhere, and even a reservation scheme doesn't create a big bucket of gas or a big cabin of gas or a big tank of gas that can suddenly be brought into the market at short notice. But we do have some storage. We do have some storage in Victoria, for example. Um, we've always had that. It is used in, it for similar sort of problems in winter, but only it has a, it's only got a very limited amount of available, of, of capacity. In, in Canada, for example, because they have vicious winters, they have huge understand, underground storage caverns, may pump gas out of those when things get really cold. I don't think we're going to be trying to do that sort of thing. So I've not seen a reservation scheme of that sort that would actually solve the problem we're concerned about today. I think there might be some other things that government could do on the gas front, but I don't think that would solve the problem. Their reservation scheme would be one of them.
0: The federal and state ministers have said that preparation for or plans for a capacity mechanism should be advanced as quickly as possible, but the federal government doesn't seem keen on this mechanism involving the fossil fuels. Can you explain the mechanism and can it operate without some fossil fuel?
1: The idea of a, of a capacity mechanism flows from the concept that we are grad, we are steadily approaching when we have a lot of a system that is dominated by wind and solar energy and the concern people have got is that it may be that the way that sort of market would work it wouldn't provide sufficient financial incentive for capacity generation capacity or even Any capacity of providing more electricity into the system in periods of time, a bit like what we've got now, but more likely to be periods of time when, you know, when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining for, you know, because things are cold and there's not much wind and there's not much sun. And that happens like about now in winter. So how do you, what sort of things would do that? The sort of things that would provide that capacity would be gas. But of course, gas is a fossil fuel. They could be big batteries. Batteries don't last very long. It could be pumped hydro, but we've only got one snowy, snowy hydro and that would it would it would be very useful. It would be one of the things that could be paid in a capacity mechanism to be there. And the idea is what you do is you say, look, we're not going to u- need you very often, but we are going to need you every now and again. And it's going to be really important that you're there. So we're going to pay you a bit like insurance. We're going to pay you to be there. Even if we never use you, you'll still be there and we'll be paying for that. But the reason we're paying you is so you will be there when we need you and you can come on quickly now. The difficulty is that outside the storage type concept I've just been talking about, renewable energy itself can't do that. It can't generally respond that way. So people would generally say, and I would say that when, we, when other countries have installed some form of capacity mechanism or capacity reserve or capacity payment, whatever it might be, it's tended to be mostly things that can come on quickly like gas. And, um, I think, and I've never seen one that doesn't, by the way. So I don't think it would involve coal, and you could you could um, design it in a way that didn't involve coal. Um, I don't think that will be necessary because I don't think coal would even be part of the system. I'm still not convinced that you can design a system without gas. But the governments together have said look, we want to be able to exclude coal if we want from our particular state, and I think they're go- I think they're going to have trouble designing a capacity mechanism without it. But that could come down to a lot of you know, important discussions and negotiations with individual state governments. I think the Commonwealth it would, would be still fairly keen on a capacity mechanism, but designing it is going to be subject to quite a lot of argy-bargy, I think.
0: Finally, how long do you think the decarbonisation of the economy will take? And if this doesn't sound too contradictory, will there be still any role for gas or fossil fuel generally, when we finally have a decarbonised energy system, leaving aside that capacity mechanism, which seems to be more an emergency situation.
1: What, what The term that these people use very lightly and don't think about very often is net zero. Remember, the both the coalition parties and the Labour Party, all the state and territory governments have committed to net zero by 2050. In In doing that, they've recognised that there will be some emissions that will be either very difficult or very expensive to get rid of. Now, we don't know what they are yet. We're going to, get all the, we're going to do all the things that are easy and not too hard and require, but require new technologies, and those two technologies will come along, but we still might find some that are very hard. The last few percent of the electricity system may be in that category. So in that case, there may still be a role for some things that produce emissions, some fossil fuels, but they'll be very small and limited. And then what we do is we offset those emissions by using technologies that take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And this is where you hear things like, well, planting trees, soil carbon, putting the carbon back in the soil, or even something called direct air capture. So we take, even though we are still putting some emissions into the atmosphere, we're also taking some out. And that's why you get net zero rather than absolute zero. And it's possible But gas could still play a role by 2050, provided we offset those emissions, or we bury the carbon dioxide underground. Both of those could be expensive, but it could be cheaper than trying to get rid of that last bit, because getting rid of that last bit might be very, very expensive.
0: And in terms of the length of time, could we get to the decarbonised economy before 2050, or would you think we'd be lagging despite the target even after 2050?
1: When you think about our entire economy, of which electricity supply provides about a third of the emissions, in total, we're about 500 million tonnes, and electricity is about a third of that is going down. And renewables and all the things we've been talking about, Michelle, will drive that further. Transport's another one. Part of the answer there is to electrify all of our cars and our personal transport. We'll also have to stop using gas. People who use gas for cooking in their homes We'll have to stop using gas for cooking in their homes and for heating their homes and their hot water and move towards electricity. That will not be a simple thing to do, and it won't be without cost. But it will happen, and we can do all that relatively soon. So I think over the next couple of decades, we will see an accelerating move in this direction. The really hard ones, the ones that are going to be the things we'll be sorting out in the 2040s is where there's going to be very significant capital investment to change over a lot of equipment that uses gas for food processing, for making things like bricks, for making things like steel and concrete and fertilisers and explosives. A lot of them are very difficult to replace with electricity. There are potential solutions, but there's a long way to go. And then, of course, you've got the somewhat infamous one, which is burping cows and sheep. Now, there really is no simple technical solution to those ones. And maybe that's where the idea of offsetting emissions will finally lie. But I, I, I have no doubt we can, uh, we can move to net zero by 2050 but remember it will be net zero it won't be absolute zero and of course the sooner we start really seriously creating momentum in that direction the more likely we are to get there and the more likely it is we'll get there without too much cost
0: Tony Wood, thank you very much for talking with us today and clarifying a lot of the issues at the centre of this uh, perplexing energy debate. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with another interview soon. But that's all for today. Goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.